This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say these are unprecedented times in our world, and I sincerely hope the time you spend with this podcast brings some solace to your day. One of the reasons I love talking about literature in all its forms is that it illuminates our human journey and our universal longings. It brings us together and unifies rather than divides. So thank you for tuning in, and as Charles Dickens wrote, have a heart that never hardens, and a temper that never tires, and a touch that never hurts. And I wish for you to be well, be safe, be healthy. Coming up, an interview with Anne Napolitano, author of the novel Dear Edward. I found the writing of this book to be a very joyful experience. I loved writing this book, and that has not been true in the other writing that I've done, to this extent, certainly. We'll be back with Anne Napolitano in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Anne Napolitano, fiction writer and editor. Her novels include Within Arm's Reach, A Good Hard Look, and Dear Edward. 
Napolitano is a teacher and associate editor of One Story Literary Magazine. She received her MFA from New York University. Her novel, Dear Edward, tells the story of 12-year-old Eddie Adler, who boards a plane in Newark headed to Los Angeles with his parents, older brother, and 183 other passengers. The plane crashes in Colorado, and Eddie, who becomes Edward after the accident, is the sole survivor. Napolitano structured the novel with two storylines, the plane journey and Edward's life afterward, as he navigates his new life living with his aunt and uncle and his new friend Shay, who lives next door. We began the discussion with Anne Napolitano, talking about the real-life incident that inspired the story. The genesis was that I became obsessed with a story that was in the news. And um, in 2010, there was a real plane crash. It was a flight from South Africa bound for London, and it crashed in Libya. And there was only one survivor, and it was a nine-year-old Dutch boy. And they found him about a half mile away from the rest of the wreckage, and he was still buckled into his airplane seat. And he had a punctured lung and a broken leg, but he was otherwise fine. And everyone else on the flight, including his parents and his brother, died immediately. Um, and it was huge news at the time. Like, you definitely heard about it. It was on every newspaper front page. Um, but hardly anyone remembers it now because so many things have happened in the interim. But I became obsessed with the story right away. I couldn't read enough about it. And also... It was in 2010, social media had sort of reached a different level. Um, It had sort of become what we recognize it as now for the first time, where everyone that you knew, including your mother, was on Facebook. And that had not been the case prior to this. So when this huge international event happened, people were weighing in from all these new corners that hadn't been visible before. There were young girls um, around the same age as the little Dutch boy that were creating pages for him on Facebook and talking about how cute he was and how sad they were for him. And there were airline aficionados that were weighing in on why they thought the plane might have crashed. There was there were stories that were leaked online from inside the hospital where the little boy was that the president of Libya had called him in the hospital. And I was obsessed with the story itself, but also the fact that for the first time I was watching this news event, which wasn't just being relayed to us by the gatekeepers, by the journalists, but, but by everyone was fascinating to me. And probably the core element in the story that I became obsessed with was that there was a photo of the little boy that accompanied nearly every um, article about this crash. And it was a photo of him in his hospital bed. And he was so small and so beautiful and so broken. And I would just look at the picture and think, how is this little boy going to be able to get out of that hospital bed and walk out of that hospital without his mom and his dad and his brother? Like, how is that possible? Like, how could he, how is he going to be able to go on and be okay in any way, shape or form? And it was like in the swirl of all of that and the way that this obsession felt to me, um, I knew that I was going to have to write my way into understanding it. And so what I basically ended up trying to do was I I needed to believe that this little boy could be okay, so I created a set of of fictional circumstances where it might be possible. And that was basically, and that was like the next eight years of my life, um, trying to make that possible um, in writing Dear Edward. I'm always curious about how, how writers do go to the page with questions and how the writing process might have changed you as a writer or the questions that you had about this situation 
either got resolved or brought up more questions. Yeah, I think I, I really didn't know if I was going to be able to make him get him to a place where he was okay. It wasn't like that was that that was the question that I started with, and it remained a question basically the whole time. And it was about hitting the right emotional notes for him that felt true, and I just I had to stay um, on course with that as opposed to trying to like propel him into a land of recovery or or growth. It was like I I needed to I. The only the massive amount of it took me eight years to write, and actually the plain sections were so to speak easy to write. I did research and planning for the first year, so I figured out who was on the plane, and I I did research into each of those characters, and I thought about that all of that, and then that was easy. Edward was Edward's life after the crash was certainly the most challenging part, and the part that I rewrote and rewrote and rewrote because because it had to, I had to get there truthfully and I had to sort of feel my way there emotionally. And so that meant a lot of sort of like taking him down one road, but more emotionally than anything else and then pulling back. And then there are times where his, his he and his storyline were so muted and depressed that it barely moved at all and that didn't work. And so I kept trying to answer that question and along the way, like, could he be okay with being the question? And then along the way, there was a, I had to explore grief. I had to explore love. I had to explore kindness of the people around him and what that meant to him. Because he was so still in his sadness for a lot of it, I ended up having to, for myself even, like, go very deep into, like, what love was and what grief was and what it would take for around a person, particularly a child, to make them okay. Um, Actually, I found the writing of this book to be a very joyful experience. I loved writing this book, and that has not been true in the other writing that I've done, to this extent, certainly. And some of that is because I'm older, etc. But part of it certainly was in dealing with these sort of very elemental subjects of, like, how do we make each other okay? Um, I had to create a world that was kind enough for him to be okay. And it ended up being a world that was like quite wonderful and meaningful for me to live in um, as a writer narratively. So even though the storyline is very sad, um, it was a really nourishing place to be inside, if that makes sense. Yeah, and that sounds like maybe something that was based on what you said about your last experiences, like a pleasant surprise, like maybe something you weren't expecting when you were kind of just perseverating over this real life incident that was so sad. Oh, yeah, I wasn't anticipating it at all. I have always loved writing. It's always been what I wanted to do. And, and it's, I realized at some point in my 20s that it was like part of who I was and that in order to be a whole human being, I had to write in order to not be depressed, et cetera. Like writing had to be part of, of me, whether I published or not was another story. Um, but I had struggled and, and have been filled with self-doubt and, and, and self-criticism up until then. And there are two things that were different. One, the, the so the book before Dear Edward is called A Good Hard Book. And um, it's set in the 1960s in Georgia, and Flannery O'Connor, the short story writer, is a character in it. And I had not intended to write a book that had Flannery O'Connor in it. She sort of had showed up in that book about a year into writing it, and I 
did not want to write a book with Flannery O'Connor in it because I'm from New Jersey. Flannery O'Connor is a Southern literary icon. You're not really supposed to write about Southern literary icons if you're not from the South. I had never intended to write a historical fiction book, all these things. So I fought that book um, while I was writing it. And then I was very intimidated by the fact that Flannery was in it and that it needed to be good enough to have Flannery in it. So there, there was a lot of like sort of it was very wrought for me. Um, I kind of fought that book while I was writing it. And that taught me actually, it taught me a number of lessons that I took into Dear Edward. Um, one of which is that now when I teach fiction writing for the last few years, I talk to my students about um, paying attention to their obsessions. So for instance, when I became obsessed with this story in the news for Dear Edward, I recognized the kind of murkiness of that feeling and like the sort of excited, um, I could feel myself light up inside when I was reading about it and I couldn't help but read more about it. And I knew at that point that it was something that had to do with my work and that was exciting to me. Um, whereas with, when I had started A Good Hard Look, uh, which also took, it took seven years to write that book, I had done a, like a, a project on Flannery O'Connor in college which had been 10 years earlier, and then had not thought of her again. But I think she she had sort of, I, what, what I say to my students is that we, each of us, not just writers, but everybody, has a, um, a magnet board inside them. And I, what I picture is like a, a rectangular magnet board filling your torso. And each of our magnet boards is specifically calibrated. Like yours is, is differently calibrated than your spouse or your best friend or your twin sister. So what pulls to your board is completely individual. And some things will pull and get stuck to your board. And if you're not paying attention and if you're not listening for the thwack of that magnet against your board, then you don't know they're there. And for a writer, that's not good at all because then the things that are sticking and pulling to your board have to do with your subjects and your themes and, and the things that sort of connect with the, the youest part of you. Um, and even if you're not a writer, it's, it's a loss if you're not listening for that thwack against your board because that is that that's what informs you about what the you of you is and what lights you up and like what pulls like what what book on the shelf do you pull out and just have to look at even though to everyone else it's completely boring or what one piece of gossip out of like 12 pieces of gossip are you like I need to know everything about that divorce and it's very easy to talk ourselves out of these kind of obsessive interests to be like oh I don't want to Gossip, gossip is beneath me. I don't want to interfere. You know, I should, I shouldn't pay attention, or I shouldn't be watching these twelve hours of like mushroom documentaries. That's a weird thing for me to do. I don't want to be a weird person. And so people turn these things off um, without even thinking as they go through their days and through their life, and then they stop being able to even hear when the, these things thwack against their board. And so, in any case, during college, I think when I did this project on Flannery O'Connor, for a few reasons, she stuck to my board. But I had no idea. I wasn't paying attention. I didn't hear it. So when she appeared in my novel 10 years later, I was horrified, and I couldn't understand it. It made no sense to me, and I fought it. But then, about basically 10 years later again, when the storyline, uh, when this new, this crash happened across the world, and this, I saw this photo of this little boy in the newspaper... I was listening and I was paying attention and I, and I was able to be excited by the fact that I had just found something that I had to work with that, that, that asked questions that I uh, needed to answer within my work. So 
that was revelatory and I was able to like walk into it like with my eyes wide open and just fully excited by it instead of fighting it. Um, and then the second thing that I did was that that made a huge difference was really thanks to my husband actually. He had watched me he had watched me sort of be miserable while writing the Flannery O'Connor book. And I also have always written according to um that E. L. Doctorow quote, um about writing a novel, that writing a novel is like driving home on a foggy night. You can only see as far as the headlights, but that's far enough to get you home. So it was sort of an intuitive writing style where I would get into a scene and someone would enter the room and I would be surprised and they would say something that would surprise me and that would propel the plot to the next page, basically, um, which is really a wonderful way to write in many ways because it's an act of discovery, the same way reading is an act of discovery. Um, but in the Flannery O'Connor novel, I had I just had been fighting everything. So I was, I was writing like 400 page tangents that I ended up cutting. I was like going in circles and figure eights and it wasn't serving me being completely intuitive because I was kind of in this very gnarled, uh, mental place as far as the, the narrative and that showed up on the page too. So it was really a struggle in that way as well. So my husband challenged me when I finished that book for whatever book I did next, that for the first year, I shouldn't let myself write any sentences um, and I should only research and read and think about it for a year and take notes. And that was really difficult for me at the time uh, because I really love writing sentences and that is like, <laughs> that's the sort of the, the lyricism of the language and everything and, and building scenes and sentences is, is like the joyful part for me. Um, but he was so right because it turns out for me anyway, my cerebral, the cerebral part of my brain gets turned off when I'm writing pretty sentences. I can't think or like sort of be analytical about plot or, or pull back and see the, the forest for the trees in any way when I'm actually writing. But during that first year, I was able to sort of figure out everybody who was on the plane. I did, I read different books and research for each one of them. Um, he challenged me to read outside my genre, which would be generally literary fiction. So I read like the Sandman series by Neil Gaiman during that year and reading that inspired, uh, the character Florida that's on the plane who believes that she's lived multiple lives. And I, I thought about Edward and his life on the ground. And so, but when I actually started writing, I was in a very different place than I had ever been starting a book before. And I was also very open to all the questions that were being answered and not fighting any of them. You know, spending this year thinking about it, I would assume like when you were thinking is how you alighted on this kind of creation of, of two storylines. One is after the crash and Edward's life of, for a few years, and one is kind of just boarding the plane all the way up to the crash, and you go back and forth. And, and in the storyline of the crash, you also highlight a bunch of different people on the plane. You get snippets of their lives and a little bit about their history. So, so the reader's connecting to the people on the plane. How did you come up with that strategy for the structure? Um, there's only a few things that I knew like right away that I was going to do as far as in the book. And one of them was that I just knew right away that the plane chapters were going to sit side by side with the, um, after the crash chapters. And I, think that it was because I sort of felt intuitively that if something this catastrophically horrible happened to a person, as happens to Edward, 
that day, what happened on that plane is something that he's going to carry with him for the rest of his life. And it's not a weight that he would ever be able to set down. It's, it's more a matter of learning to bear that weight. So it felt right to me that it held the same amount of space in the novel and that it sat side by side with his new life because I felt like that that's how it would feel for him. Um, and actually, I don't think of them... It was surprising to me when the book came out and sort of people start, were referring to the flashback chapters and the present tense chapters because in my brain, they're both present tense chapters that sit by side by side, like the plane is in the air and he's on the ground. Um, and I think that is how it is for Edward as well. So I don't – that is – there were literally like three things that I sort of knew when I first started, and that was one of the three things. So – I want to get to Edward's story, but my, my last question kind of about all the characters that are inhabiting the plane are how did you choose those people? I mean, basically you have um, you have a woman, Florida, who believes in last lives. You have a woman, Linda, who is kind of um, doesn't have a lot of money, is having a long distance relationship and finds out she's pregnant. You have a kind of some kind of business magnet named Crispin Cox. Uh, you have... A, a military man named Benjamin, and you have um, kind of a Forbes profiled finance guy named Mark. So they, they all inhabit kind of a different realm of our society. Yeah, that I mean, that was intentional um, in that during the year of planning, when I realized that half this book was going to take uh, place on a plane, I was like, it was an amazing, it felt like an amazing opportunity as a writer because everyone flies. So if I was writing a domestic drama that takes place, you know, in a, in a house, in a family, I'm contained by, you know, the people that would live in that house and that family. And here I could do anyone. And so I, I intentionally wanted the characters to be very different from each other just because that felt accurate and it also felt like a really interesting opportunity to look at like how these different people lived their lives and the choices that they made because I think that's the theme that I that definitely sticks to my magnet board and that I keep returning to in one way or another is how to live a meaningful life and so the the sort of the lessons I mean they're not lessons they're people but like the the different choices and the different backgrounds of the people on the plane being so wildly different from each other just show let me show like how differently we can live and and the different kind of choices that we can make and the ones that serve us and the ones that don't but also like how what makes one person tick isn't what makes another person tick and like that's wonderful and kind of glorious as well so i i really intentionally wanted them to be spread out i also wanted some of them to be in first class and some of them to be in coach i wanted i wanted to span sort of socioeconomic and and backgrounds and um racial etc everything um and that was really fun. Like I, I read, um, I read the autobiography of Jack Welch, the guy who ran GE for like 30 years, um, which is called uh, Jack Straight from the Gut, um, for Crispin Cox. Um, and I read, um, I read War by Sebastian Younger and spoke to a friend of mine that was in the army for, uh, for Benjamin. And I read, I have a friend who's a pure mathematician. And I also read a book on math by David Foster Wallace for the dad, who's a pure mathematician. I read the Sandman series that inspired Florida, uh, who believes in she's had many lives. So I sort of, I looked at each of them and thought like, how can I inhabit this person in a way that feels truthful and real? 
and it was real. It just felt like a very good fortune that I got, that I got to do so that I was on this plane and that and that everyone was already there for me. All of these these people that you created are also ghosts that can inhabit that do inhabit Edward's mind in a way. The people he saw on the plane, as well as his family, he his mom and his dad and his brother, who he was close to. They had a very close family. He was actually homeschooled, so spent a lot of time with his father. Uh, those are all swirling around, and he's in the hospital just recovering. And, and that question of, like, yeah, how does he go on? And he goes to live with his aunt and uncle named Lacey and John, who live in New Jersey, and they come to get him. And when he's leaving the hospital, Lacey tells him that he's not okay. And that's kind of liberating for him because I think so many people um, want to gloss over that. And I felt like that was an important moment early in the story to set up his journey. They were in the car leaving the hospital going to his aunt and uncle's house and he had been to their house before but like you know maybe 10 times and always with his parents and his brother and he couldn't even remember the name of the town where they live and he's going to live there. Her her saying that to him is, is such a kindness because it's true like nothing about this situation is okay. There's no way for him to be okay inside of it and for him for her not to insist that he pretend to be okay is is a real a real gift. So once he gets home, he is with Lacey and John in their house and there's so much sadness in the house. It's like I felt like there were layers of ghosts because they had wanted to have a child very badly and they had a nursery and he got put into the nursery and it held so much pain. So he was modulating like so many layers. And one of the things that happened to him, or obviously you you put this upon him, was he, he kind of changed his identity in the sense that he was always Eddie. And then people started referring to him as Edward on the internet and in the papers and when he was kind of like this hero around the world. And I was curious about the name change and, and how that can markedly change someone, even though you're fundamentally the same person. Yeah, I think that ended up being, that was another like thought that I had very early that just felt intrinsically right to me that he would have some kind of a a nickname with his family or, you know, be referred to one way in his entire life up until this moment. Um, and when he's in the hospital, like the PR person in the hospital asks Lacey whether they should refer to him in the press as Eddie or Edward, which would be his given name. And she says Edward. And and it it, it just felt intrinsically correct that, like, he is so everything is different for him now. He looks the same. He's still 12 years old, but his everything inside of him and outside of him has completely changed for so for him to have a different name now felt again like a way of it, of confirming that fact and being like, "Well, I, I can't be. I'm not Eddie anymore." So to call me Eddie is a painful because that's what his mom and dad and brother called him. Um but B just like it it felt appropriate for him to be renamed for this this new existence that he had that he had to figure out his way through um and it was another sort of unintentional kindness from his aunt um who's broken herself because of infertility um struggles that she and her husband had having and they'd been struggling in their marriage because of that and then also she had just lost her sister who was um edward's mother on the flight so i think from like inside her 
grief, she was able to give him a few a few things at the very beginning that allowed him to sort of um, take steps as a, as a new person with a new name who is allowed to not be okay. Yeah, I mean, in, in a way it was, I, I mean, I think he has a few rebirths. I, I mean, I would say in in my reading, he has kind of two rebirths, but the first one is is coming out of this plane crash and trying to find his feet under underneath him and and where he is in the world and and hearing about your obsession with this real story and and the change in Facebook and social media at the time that you really started thinking about this is is more insight for me because he has this um, line that he thinks to himself but he I believe he was talking to John his uncle and starting to understand how many people in the world are sort of obsessed with him or rallying around him, that um, people write about him on the internet, that he has like a, a handle on Twitter. And he's, I think maybe he was also talking to Shay then and, and trying to figure out like who he was. And, and I think they, the character said to him, you know, you, you, can't take it all in and and you have to decide what's true for you and he has this moment where he says where do you go for the truth yeah that's a conversation he has with his uncle and his uncle because he edward from the beginning sort of um doesn't google himself or the flight or um or anything like that, but he he so he does sort of accidentally when he discovers his uh, uncle's iPad one night, and his friend Shay helps him, and she looks it up, and he doesn't look at the screen, and then um, he asks his uncle after that if his uncle will tell him if anything is on the internet about him that he should know, basically, um, and his uncle says to him that he will do that, but that he that Edward should know that nothing can happen to him that doesn't take place within his own skin, that there are cowboys and people who make up sad stuff on the internet, but that's not where the truth is. And, and then Edward wonders, but is afraid to ask out loud, like, where is the truth? But really his uncle has told him that the truth is within him. Like there can't be information about him, a 12 year old boy on the internet that he doesn't know because he, it's his life and, and he, he's inhabiting it. And nothing can happen to him without him being, nothing real can happen to him without him being aware of it. That kind of fame was was part of what interested me in the real crash and, and for him too. Because it is this like strange, fake, and yet pervasive element of our society where, you know, all the clicks and the likes and the the headlines and the speculations that happen online and, and who becomes famous in this sort of ephemeral um you know, Instagram way. Um, but none of that is, you know, if you're sitting alone in a room and somebody's clicking something 2 million times about you, um, it's not happening to you. It's happening outside. Um, and it's, I think it's very difficult as the subject of that. I can, I can only imagine, um, to sort of separate those two things, but like Edward has to. Yeah. And I think on a deeper level too, it's, it's finding the truth of, of who he is and how does he, ground himself with the loss of his family and being this person in the world. And one thing you did throughout the book that was really interesting as a reader, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little more about it, 
is that Edward was in a gap with so much silence. He kept so much from all the other characters, the people he was close to, Shay, his next door neighbor, his aunt and uncle, even his therapist, and he keeps it to himself. But the reader knows. Sometimes it's um, his own thoughts that you put in italics or just something that happened that we see that other people don't. And it creates a sort of tension. That's an interesting question. It, I guess in one way that I thought about it was that I think Edward is a kind person and he's very sensitive to <clears throat> sort of the to the extent that he can be on the disruption that he's presented in his aunt and uncle's life. And he doesn't want to cause any more um, unhappiness or confusion than he already has. So his instinct is to try and do as much as he can for his aunt and uncle, like what they want him to do, which in the beginning includes like eat and, you know, sort of get healthy, physically healthy and stronger and not, not show his grief to them. Um, it's not like he could, it's not like he's secretly crying. It's, it's something that he's carrying with him. Um, and also by his age being 12, um, he's old enough that he's, very aware of what he's going through, but he's not emotionally articulate enough to talk about it. So I think the two releases for him ends up being his own thoughts, which you do see in italics, or um, it's what he's not saying aloud, but thinking. And then the other release is his friend Shay, who is his age, and she is very um, blunt and honest, and she gets bored easily, and she is kind of provocative to him and that she will, she'll ask him questions or tell him things about himself that he has to respond to. And so we get to know him and he gets to know himself through Shay as well. Um, but I think the innate tension for me was that it's him trying to sort of take care of himself enough so that he doesn't um, put more of a burden on the grown-ups around him. Um, and that felt natural to who he was and also natural to his grief. So much of him, him was submerged below the surface because of the grief and because of his age and because of his uh, personality. Only so much of it could, could be said or shown. Um, so it was a matter of like walking that line. And that line ended up being sort of the thing that I was referring to and I had to rewrite the Edward chapter so much because sometimes I would have him too submerged so there weren't enough thoughts for us to re to access him as readers um, and he was all in this sort of lost murky place um, so it, ha it was a matter of like dancing along that line so that enough of him was showing up for Shay to reach and for us to see and for other events sort of that happen around him to to have an impact on him and be able to reach him. Yeah, it does. And I think something that goes along in tandem with that was that Edward was the type of person that wanted to do a lot to keep the peace or please the people around him. So a lot of times he wasn't really... Um, he wasn't really gelling what, what was happening. He didn't want to, for instance, live and sleep in the the baby's room that they had prepared and that became obvious he didn't exactly say it but he used to go next door and sleep at Shay's house but other incidences would be like 
his aunt made a birthday cake for him that she was convinced was his favorite birthday cake, but it actually wasn't. But he wouldn't say anything because he wanted to keep the peace so much for everyone else. But it was actually killing all of them. And when he learned to not do that, I think they all became more free. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the that's very true. And he... It's the it was also the idea that what happened to him was so like unbelievably devastating that no one around him and no no one you know within our own lives has ever come across you know where someone walks into your midst a child walks into your midst who has uh, suffered something on the scale of surviving a crash where 191 people including your family were killed so all the grown-ups are walking on eggshells with him initially. And his aunt and his uncle are trying their best in their various ways to show up for him in ways that they think that they should show up for him. But but there's no um, there's no instruction book for this. It's so completely outside the realm of anything any of them have experienced that while he's being silent and they're walking on eggshells, there's no way for them to um, to really communicate honestly, you know, their own needs or sadness or anything. And and indeed later on in the book when he starts being more forthright it allows them to not walk on eggshells and they can actually start connecting with each other which is completely necessary for them to move forward i i think too i mean i don't want to i don't want to give away the plot at all because but i I'll, I'll say that um edward makes a discovery that basically this discovery slowly brings him to life and alights him and really transforms him into a new person and is at the heart of of the story. And one thing that is related to that um, is that in a, in a more spiritual way maybe is one of the things that turns up later in the book is that his science teacher is telling them about this Hadron Collider which is a machine that's investigating theories of particle physics. And the scientists think basically that this this machine is helping them being on the brink of understanding what happens in the air between two people, like a molecular level energy. And this is something that came in towards the end of the book, but had some repeating themes. And I'm just wondering if you want to talk about this idea and how that came came up for you. I think how it came up for me was that I watched a documentary at some point in that eight-year period about the Hadron Collider, uh, which is in Switzerland. And I think it's like the biggest machine ever built. It's fascinating. I mean, I highly recommend like watching a YouTube video about it um, because they are doing the, these extensive um experiments on uh, different particle theories um, with this absolutely unbelievable city, city-sized city machine. Um, and that was one of the things that was in, you know, that they're sort of testing the full range. Like, And the idea being, like, when you walk into a room and there's a stranger there and you just, like, you immediately feel comfortable with that person or you immediately feel drawn to that person or you feel immediately like I do not like that person and you there you haven't been given any other information or any information at all other than what that person looks like um, to have those kind of responses so 
it makes innate sense to me that there's something happening in the air between us, all of us, that lead to those, um, both the extreme responses and the sort of like, eh, I don't know, maybe the kind of response that you have when you meet somebody new. Um, you know, when you, even like you can meet someone and be like, oh, I, I'm going to be friends with this person. Like, why? It's, it's fascinating to me. Like, there's something, there's something that's not about language going on between us that is so, so interesting that I wanted to play with. And I also felt like it was that sort of conversation and those questions of like, what is going on between us in a room um, with a stranger occupies the same territory as the plane. Edward comes to believe that within himself, that if he stays alive and well on the ground, that the plane that he was on stays in the air and that he's sort of balancing this sort of act where he's always sitting in an airplane seat next to it between his brother and his father and the people that were on the plane are still alive up in the air and obviously that could be construed as magical thinking but there's also obviously theories of multi multi multiverses and different truths occupying you know exist coexisting um next to each other and so in another life he's still or in another version of this life he's still sitting up on that plane he's still 12 years old and those people are still alive that belief to me occupies the same space as like the air between us is not empty there's something happening that we can choose to believe in or react to or not but he comes to believe in it well, it seems too, because like in my notes, I have that part like linked to everything you just said, like on my notes about how he is molecularly connected to everyone he's ever touched. And in some reality, the plane is still flying and his 12 year old self is on it. And that, you know, what we do have has ripple effects, effects, if you want to go even further, that if we do good in the world, that that can create its own sort of molecular truth that can manifest. And that's in a larger sense or maybe a smaller sense, what art does, you know, that, that, that is where your book is maybe going, but it seems like you probably did not know that when you started this project eight years earlier. Oh God, no, no, (laughs) no, no. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's possible to know all that you're going to bring to it at the start. I mean, uh, otherwise to some extent there you know there's that's an argument against not even even writing it i got you know it, it required me to have the questions that i had to walk into the space and then build that world um and it you know it took 8 years to to build it till i felt like i'd filled every fiber of it with truth and I had no idea what most of those fibers were going to be when I walked in. I, it certainly wasn't anything as conscious as thinking, I want to explore, you know, the molecular energy that happens between us or even, like, what is truth or, you know, what is what does it mean to love? Or, or if you think to yourself, you know, someone standing next to Edward could say, you're crazy. Uh, to think that the plane is still in the air because you're on the ground. That's ridiculous. That is completely untrue, factually untrue. Um, And that would be a very cruel thing to say to him. But also, who's not to say that it's not true for him? And if it's true for him, 
and that allows him to sort of um, love and connect and, and hold on to what he lost and have what is in front of him now, then what a beautiful thing. Like, why would you take that from someone? Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Sure. Um, actually, I reference this is such an interesting question because I, of course, like there's so many things that I could <laughs> choose to read. Um, but uh, this book, I'm just going to read, I think, the first paragraph um, of uh, A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving, which actually Jordan is reading on the plane. Um, in Dear Edward, and um, John Irving is a huge source of inspiration um, for me, and I have I've loved his books for a long time. And his I don't think I write like him at all. It's it's more aspirational, but his world the worlds that he creates are so um, they're so rich and deep and um, often spanning many, many, many decades, and they feel so true and real, and there's so much love and so many, like, familial, um, real families, and then, I mean, biological families, and then um, chosen families in them. Um, he walks this terrain that is very nourishing for me as a reader, and that, you know, I would hope to sort of try to, to, to walk in, you know, walk on a similar terrain in my own way, in my own work. So this is the first paragraph of A Prayer for Own Meaning. I am doomed to remember a boy with a wrecked voice, not because of his voice or because he was the smallest person I ever knew, or even because he was the instrument of my mother's death, but because he is the reason I believe in God. I am a Christian because of Owen Meany. I make no claims to have a life in Christ or with Christ, and certainly not for Christ, which I've heard some zealots claim. I'm not very sophisticated in my knowledge of the Old Testament, and I've not read the New Testament since my old Sunday school days, except for those passages that I hear read aloud to me when I go to church. I'm somewhat more familiar with the passages from the Bible that appear in the Book of Common Prayer. I read my prayer book often, and my Bible only on holy days. The prayer book is so much more orderly. That's the first chapter, the first paragraph of that book. The first sentence of that book, I am a Christian, which ends with I am a Christian because of Owen Meany, has got to be one of the best first sentences of all time. Um, there's so much packed into it because you find out that he's doomed to remember this boy with a wrecked voice. And it's not because of his voice or because he was the smallest person he ever knew or, or because he was instrument of his mother's death. I mean, there's so much story packed into that one sentence so many questions are are raised in that one sentence that I think it's virtually impossible to put that book down after that um and it's just a real joy to read from you know following on from that first paragraph it's wonderful the, and the characters are so like you can't forget them it they they live with you and I mean that's to me like the the highest possible compliment where you know years later you're just these are the books that I like to go back and reread because they're the worlds that I completely believe in as a reader and I want to revisit. And there's so much love and kindness in his books um, as well that they're just a joy. Can you read a passage that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yes. It's going to be, it's very short. I think it's one sentence. It might be two sentences. Let me 
He's winded by the sentence, as if the truth has taken something from him. He feels a flash of fear, but then sees the look on his uncle's face. John opens his arms, and Edward steps forward. So this is the last paragraph of a very sort of emotionally charged um, scene in the book, sort of in the last third of the book. Uh, it happens in the garage um, behind his aunt and uncle's house with his it, her, Edward and his uncle. And kind of this is the ultimate scene where what you were talking about before, where Edward stops sort of hiding his truths within himself and starts being honest. And and that allows him and his uncle to hug each other um, in this last paragraph that I read. And I love this scene. And I, it's a very important scene for the book. But that little paragraph I've never been happy with I'm still I'm still like I I didn't get it right I rewrote these three sentences at least a hundred times and I know it's good and I know it works and no one else agrees with me basically but I know that there's some slight permutation of these words that would make it even better and I was just never able to do it so that that little three sentence segment I still feel like I didn't serve it as well as I could have. So, I mean, that's one example. Sometimes it's, it proves to be unattainable to, to reach, like, just the tiny um, changes that you need to to make it what you know it could be. And um, whereas I am very happy with this scene as a whole, that those three sentences, I feel like I didn't get there. Where do you write? Well, since I had children... Um, Anywhere, basically, is the real answer, but ideally, I write um, at my kitchen table next to a, a window that has a tree outside of it and light coming through the window, or I write in bed. Uh, those are my two favorite places to write. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, I run. I mean, not like in an exciting, impressive way, but I'm a runner, and running regularly really helps me and I love it and makes me feel strong and joyful. Um, I cook, I parent, and I am kind of obsessed with the NBA and hanging out with my girlfriends. Those would be the ones that help me the most. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Two other writers named um, Helen Ellis, who um, most recently published a uh, last year a um, book of essays called Southern Lady Code. Before that, an amazing book of short stories called American Housewife. Um, and the other writer is Hannah Tinty. And she is the co-founder of One Story Literary Magazine. And she published an amazing novel called um, Novels. Uh, the most recent one's called um, The Twelve Lives of Samuel Hawley. And the one before that is called The Good Thief. And the three of us met in graduate school at New York University um, in Danny Shapiro's fiction workshop um, like 24 years ago, and we have been each other's first readers ever since. How have you dealt with rejection? When I, so I went to graduate school for fiction writing, um, and then I wrote a novel in graduate school, and that was rejected by 80 agents, and I put it in a drawer. And then I wrote another novel while working as a personal assistant. And that one I got an agent for, but the agent was unable to sell it. So I put that in, in a drawer. And at that point, I was like 28 years old. And I can't write short stories. I'm a novelist by 
at this point, I mean, who knows what, what can happen, but up until this point in my life, I've been able, unable to write any, any form other than novels. So I had not published anything, and I was 28, and I had organized my whole life around this dream. I had a full-time job, but my personal assistant job I had chosen because it fit well and made sense to allow me time to write. Um, and so my father was sending me um, law school pamphlets in the mail, and I felt like I was really depressed because it seemed like I was, I mean, I was, I was failing with a big capital F and I, um, I didn't know what to do because I hadn't made a plan B really. And, um, in that depression, I realized that the only thing that made me feel better, the only, the only way for me to climb out of the depression was writing. So I, I started writing purely to, to help climb out of that that depression and feel better. And when that happened, it was actually, it was like a huge weight came off me because I realized at that point at like 27 or 28 that, um, that I had to write, that I couldn't be a whole person without writing. And that for me, it wasn't going to have to do with whether I was published or successful in any way. I was going to keep writing for the rest of my life, whether I got published or not. And so that sort of separated rejection from my work and that ended up being sort of the best thing to happen to me because then I went on and wrote a third book um, and that was the first book that was published and that has continued for me like I, I no longer have any expectation of either being I basically assume I'm not going to be published when I'm writing the book um, but I know that I'm going to write it and then I need to write it. So I might as well enjoy it and fully inhabit it because this is what I need to be me. So that's how I dealt with rejection. And what is your favorite word? Uh, that changes, but I think right now it is quagmire. Well, thank you so much for your time and sharing so much about your process in your novel. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate all of your questions. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Anne Napolitano, author of the novel Dear Edward. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Hannah Tinty, who Anna mentioned as one of her readers. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 260 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Some clips from this month's interviews that patrons will receive as extras include an additional 25 minutes collectively of interviews with Carolyn Forche, Anna Solomon, and Anne Napolitano, and writing tips from some of these same authors. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Sue Monk Kidd, Vanessa Hua, Anne Enright, Mary South, Tara Shea Nesbitt, and Lori Gottlieb. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. 
Please stay healthy out there, and I hope this podcast makes the time at home more pleasant. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.